electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. And hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead. National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow joins us exclusively. We're going to talk job losses, the state of reopenings, PPP changes, and potential new sanctions against China. It's all on the agenda today. Plus, speaking of China, the country tightening its grip on Hong Kong. At what point should U.S. companies begin to worry about doing business there? And believe it or not, more shoppers are going to stores than expected. We'll tell you the names where the traffic has surprised the analysts to the upside. But we do begin with today's markets. Some interesting rotation underway, shall we say, Doc? We, we can talk about rotation. I'm, I'm also noticing that we're about, we're about 12 feet away yes. from each other in this relational Just shot. Clear. Just to be clear. Appropriately socially distanced. Anyway, take a look at the markets right near their session highs of the day. The Dow up about roughly three quarters of one percent. The S&P 500 up about one percent and the Nasdaq up about a percent as well. So just about in line with the all three major averages. I'm not going to touch this just so you know, because it's our new world order. However, take a look at some of that rotation that Kelly was talking about before. Growth value, value growth, which is going to be the predominant momentum part of the market in the coming months. Well, for right now, it sure looks like the white line growth on a year to date basis continues to outperform value. We'll see whether or not that trend continues. That's a big theme for a lot of traders as we head to the second half of this year. And to top it all off, the best performing stock in the S&P 500 today, discount retail. Dollar Tree, specifically, that company owns both Dollar Tree stores and Family Dollar, up 11%. All of that COVID-19 stockpiling has bumped their sales up big. They also got a big same-store sales boost. So, Kelly, those dollar stores getting a bit of a pickup. You can see, though, long-term, maybe not as much. We'll send things back over to you. That is a big move. Uh, Dom, thanks so much, Dominic Chu. Well, the Nasdaq is back to outperforming today, while the airlines are lower after a sharp rebound of late. Is the reopening trade fizzling out a little bit? For more on that, I'm joined by Chris Zaccarelli, the chief investment officer of the Independent Advisor Alliance, and Noah Blackstein is portfolio manager of the Dynamic Funds. Uh, Chris, I'll start with you, and welcome to you both. Um, you know, one day we have the kind of back to normal trade working really well. The next day we're taking a step back. I mean, how, how would you kind of describe the landscape here? And, and, you know, what would your advice be in this environment? Sure. Uh, you know, from where we sit, we, there's been an incredible recovery in the stock market, obviously, since the lows in, in March. And we think a lot of the good news is priced in. So at this point, we're getting a little more cautious. We think there's about three things that the market's going to really focus on for the rest of the year. And that'll probably help determine the presidential election as well. First thing is U.S.-China relations. Second will be how uh, technology companies face increasing regulatory threats. And then finally, how the, how the pandemic uh, coronavirus uh, situation is handled by the administration. If the administration can handle those three things well, they're looking at another four years. We're going to see uh, independents and people in swing states vote to keep the current uh, leadership in, in charge. However, if any of those things go wrong, it could be a, a toss up and we could see a change election. So I think those things will both move the markets as well as determine the outcome in November. It's an interesting point, Noah, especially on tech regulation. And I'm curious how big of a risk factor you think that might be when you think about uh, some of the other things like rising interest rates. Uh, if we do get that trend to continue, I know that's a big if. Um, does that pose a threat to the Nasdaq? And by the way, I've even heard people say, look, if there is a, a, more of a hiccup in U.S. China, that also puts uh, some of the Nasdaq companies at more risk. Do any of those factors concern you? Well, I think what you touched on. Uh, yeah, I would say all of those factors are a concern. Sorry. I mean, I think the interest rate situation is a little bit more impactful for, for financial for financials in a positive way yeah. and for utilities and other rate sensitive uh, sectors in, in, a, in a negative way. But absolutely, tech regulation is going to be a big issue that's going to be with us for the rest of this year. And that attacks the leadership of the market. So at this point, the market's really off to the races. However, we could be susceptible for some pullbacks due to those factors. Yeah. Noah Blackstein, uh, what about you? So I think the original question you sort of had asked about is, is, is sort of this, this rally of sort of the beaten down sectors um, versus uh, some of the things that have been benefiting more recently from uh, from the, this digital transformation. I think some of these trends were in place before this pandemic and sort of 
um, were, have been accelerated because of it. I do think, though, that if you look at the leadership from the bottom at the end of, uh, from the bottom around March 23rd, it hasn't been technology that's been the best performing sector. In fact, on a year-to-date basis, it has. But from the lows, things like energy stocks are, are in the leadership, followed by healthcare, and then consumer discretionary and tech have been sort of battling between uh, third and, and fourth. And so there's been a there's been a big move in some of the more distressed sectors more recently. I think some of that has to do with the Fed buying and, and tightening up um, tightening up the yield curve. Uh, excuse me, the, the, the tightening up spreads. Part of that also has to do with green shoots. I mean, we're clearly hearing as companies are opening. Uh, throughout most of the economy, that, that customers are coming back uh, in many ways. In fact, some retailers are saying sales are up year over year. So there, there certainly are green shoots as this economy is reopening. I do think, though, that the last couple of days, there's been talk going around that the Federal Reserve might be targeting the yield curve, mm. the shape or the slope of the yield curve. And I think that's sent a whole bunch of quantitative funds uh, into a massive rotation. So you see things like Nordstrom's up 33% in, in a couple of days. I'm not sure that's fundamentally justified. But to me, that's would you like know connect else. those dots for us real quickly? Uh, why, if the Fed's uh, talking about or people think they might target the yield curve, could that result in quant funds rotating into something like Nordstrom? You know, no matter how different they all tell you that they are, they all seem to be triggering off the, the shape and the slope of the yield curve. So the steeper the yield curve, um, to an extent, they believe is 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 a sign to get more cyclical. There is another part of that, a big chunk of these value indexes. And I've been a growth manager for 25 years. You know, a group of people at 55 Water Street aren't going to define what a value in a growth stock is for me. Of course, I look at valuation as a growth manager. But what I'm saying, though, is that um, a lot of these value indexes are, are terrible and contain a tremendous amount of financials. And a sloping up and, and, a, and a positive sloping yield curve is actually very good uh, for the banks. So it could have triggered, that could have been triggered yeah. an anticipatory change uh, to get this huge move in the banking index. I don't think we've seen the KRE move this much in a few days since the end of the global financial crisis. Yeah. Um, we don't even know if the Fed is going to target the yield curve. So it's all anticipatory. Right, right. which uh, tells you, Chris, that if we get some headlines saying maybe they won't, uh, maybe to watch out below. I'll give you the final word on where you, uh, where you would be placing your money. So right now, I think you have to take a look at the situation that the, the market's doing well. We could see this recovery continue, and you want to be positioned for that economic expansion. So within the cyclicals, we think the financials have the most value. They're both inexpensive at a price to book around 1.1 times book. And, and for, for that reason, we think there's a margin of safety. If things get a lot better, you'll see the banks continue to outperform, and they're going to have a great rest of the year. However, if things do pull back and, and the economy does, does run into some hiccups, we think that margin of safety will protect you on the downside. So from a risk-reward point of view, we like the financials the most. All right. Chris Zaccarelli, Noah Blackstein, thank you both today for your thoughts on these markets. Appreciate it. Uh, let's turn to Rick Santelli. Now, we had that terrible auction of five-year Treasury notes yesterday, followed by an auction of seven-year notes today. Uh, Rick, how did the auction go off? You know, it wasn't so bad. It wasn't as bad as yesterday's fives, but a little bit below average. I gave it a Charlie minus, a C minus. Let's go through it. This is the last $127 billion in supply. It's seven-year, $38 billion. The yield at the Dutch auction, 0.553. So it is not the lowest auction yield ever. That was last auction when it was point. Five two five, but it's still the largest ever at thirty eight billion. Why was that a C minus? Well, because the one issue market was trading around fifty four and a half, higher yield, lower price. That's a big ding there. If you look at the bid to cover, uh, it was better than expected, so that's a little above average. Uh, as indirects were at sixty three point six, we're a little light on directs, and dealers took exactly the ten auction average, so C minus. There's been a tell the last couple of days. Look at the dollar index, whether it's an intraday or the fact that it's at two month lows, both intraday and on a closing basis, going back to March twenty seventh. It's down two-thirds of a cent, and the long maturities like 30-year bonds have the highest yield in 10 weeks. Put all that together, they're starting to move away from safety. They're going back into that most unloved space, stocks. All the big experts six weeks ago said it wasn't a buy, but it's done nothing but go straight up. And that is reflected, I think, in the dollar and the auctions. Great point, Rick. More and more people are mentioning the weakness of the dollar here. And when there's less demand for dollars, there's less demand for treasuries. 
uh, maybe helps explain a little bit of that softness. Absolutely. Sometimes things could be kind of simple. Exactly. <laughs> it's nice when that happens. Uh, Rick, thank you so much. Rick Santelli watching that in Chicago for us. President Trump is expected to sign an executive order targeting social media today. This follows his fight with Twitter after the company added fact-checking flags to his tweets for the first time. Now, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg weighed in on all of this in an interview with our Andrew Ross Sorkin today. We're different companies, but I think we've been pretty clear on, on what I think the right approach is, which is uh, that I don't think that Facebook or, or Internet platforms in general should be um, arbiters of truth. In general, you know, we've tried to distinguish ourselves as um, probably being one of the tech companies that is the most protective of giving people a voice and free expression overall. And let's bring in Kayla Tausche for the latest. Kayla, when we might expect that executive order. And we know what's in it at this point, right? Well, Kelly, the White House would only say that it's expected to be signed today, but they will not provide any formal details on this final copy of the EO or exactly when the president would sign it. A draft obtained by CNBC outlines a policy process for social media dictated by the White House that would see the FCC write new rules for how these platforms can remove content, the FTC take the lead on enforcing any violations, and the Justice Department to convene a working group of attorneys general across states to uh, isolate any incidents that are happening at the state level. Now, this is an executive order that has been in the works for nearly a year at this point. A senior administration official tells me that the interagency process had recently broken down, but that the president wanted to resurface this effort in the wake of an effort by Twitter to begin fact-checking his tweets when he was talking about mail-in ballots Earlier this week, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, said our intention is to connect the dots of conflicting statements and show the information in dispute so people can judge for themselves. More transparency from us is critical so folks can clearly see the why behind beyond our actions. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that she does not support the way that the president is going about policing these platforms, but says the platforms themselves are not innocent. They don't want to be regulated, so they pander uh, to the White House. You, you see what uh, Facebook Zuckerberg is saying today about all of this. They're just panders. Tax cuts, no regulation. What the president is doing is silly. It's silly. But like, let's say this. It's a distraction. The draft order also calls for all government agencies to review their own spending on these platforms, Kelly, which could add up to a big chunk of revenue. Back to you. So many thoughts on this one, Kayla. We're actually going to have Larry Kudlow on a little bit, maybe run this by him. I know it's not a specialty, but just as it regards, you know, what, the different approach. I mean, Facebook and Twitter are taking completely different approaches here. And Mark Zuckerberg, Kayla, that is the interesting thing. He is definitely emphasizing that. Nancy Pelosi calls it pandering. Uh, but Zuckerberg was very clear about this in that big Georgetown speech back in October, saying we're going to give political speech a wide berth. And now when's the next time we're going to have to watch Twitter slap a fact check on any of the president's tweets or anyone on the Democratic side? I mean, they've set themselves up for a pretty difficult task. Yeah, and, and even so, uh, they are fairly subjective in what they choose to police uh, in their fact-checking effort. Jack Dorsey saying that the, the platforms are not meant to be an arbiter of truth, but yet in putting those fact-checking uh, flags on some of these tweets. They are doing just that, which yeah. Mark Zuckerberg has stressed. Facebook does not want to be in the business of doing. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be super interesting. Uh, all right, we'll look for that executive order maybe a little bit later on. Kayla, thanks so much. Kayla Tausche in Washington for us today. Coming up, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says the U.S. no longer considers Hong Kong autonomous from China. It's a historic move. We're going to look at what it could mean for U.S. businesses and investors. And as U.S. China tensions rise, is the White House considering a plan to pay companies to bring their supply chains home. We're going to ask National Economic Council advisor Larry Kudlow about that coming up. The exchange is back in a couple. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back to The Exchange. China's government approving controversial new laws bringing Hong Kong more closely under Chinese control. The focus now shifting to what the U.S. will do in response to this move. Eunice Yoon joins us now live from Beijing with the very latest. Eunice. Thanks so much, Kelly. Well, the State Department released a joint statement with the U.K., Canada and Australia criticizing China's actions. But people here are waiting to see if the U.S. is going to follow up with sanctions. So today, in defiance of Washington, Beijing's lawmakers unanimously or almost unanimously approved uh, national security legislation, which paves a way for the leadership here to clamp down on activities in Hong Kong that China believes it subvers- is subversive to the Chinese state and to set up intelligence agencies there. Now, um, many fear that the laws are going to be spelling an end to freedoms in the city. Uh, President Trump had said that uh, this week the U.S. would respond on the Hong Kong issue. And uh, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had also said that uh, Hong Kong is no longer um, autonomous from mainland China. And that's really seen as the first step for the U.S. potentially to withdraw its special trading status with Hong Kong. A lot of people uh, within the business community in Hong Kong, Kelly, are saying, please do not do that uh, because they um, are anticipating that this is going to be a very a negative, have a very negative impact on the city. Yeah, it's uh, such a difficult one. Uh, Eunice, thanks very much. We're going to talk more about it right now. That's our Eunice Yoon uh, with the latest from China. How will the crackdown in Hong Kong impact U.S. companies doing business there? And if the U.S. retaliates with sanctions, could it hurt our own economic recovery from the pandemic? Joining me now, Myron Brilliant is executive vice president and head of international affairs at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And John Rutledge is chief investment officer of Safanad, a longtime China watcher and a CNBC contributor. It's great to have you both. Myron, thanks for joining us. So what is the chamber's position on this issue? Well, Kelly, in 1995, I first got involved in the U.S. Hong Kong Business Council on behalf of the U.S. Chamber. Uh, And obviously, 1997 was a seminal moment. This is another seminal moment, potentially, in Hong Kong's future and, of course, a strain in the U.S.-China relationship at a time where the relationship is already very complex with a set of challenges that are not going to be resolved uh, in the short term. I think it's a huge issue for us. I mean, we represent... uh, the 1,300 companies that are doing business already, uh, American companies doing business in Hong Kong, the 85,000 Americans that live there. And so we're very concerned about Hong Kong's future. Uh, Hong Kong has been a financial hub. It's been a model on the international scene. And we wouldn't want to see anything erode the one country, two systems approach that has served Hong Kong, China, and the U.S., as well as the global community. So this is a significant potential erosion of that one country, two system approach. Yeah. And it not only strains U.S.-China relations, which it certainly will do, but it also makes it much more complex for the people of Hong Kong and for our commercial interests directly in Hong Kong. So, John, it seems to me, I'm curious, obviously, you know, what you think about this, um, that it's beginning to be a done deal that Hong Kong is more or less just another Chinese city. And, of course, it might take a long time for the ramifications of that to fully play out. But would you disagree with that? Would you say, no, it's going to retain some kind of more Western, you know, more uh, democratized feel? I mean, it's hard to say that, given the events of the last couple of years. Kelly, I, I love Hong Kong, and I love the Hong Kong people, and this is a heartbreaking situation, as Myron said. You know, there are many angles here. One angle is that uh, China has been on the road, or Hong Kong's been on the road to being a Chinese uh, city since 1997, uh, that that was a, a move to get the U.K. out of town before the damage really happened. Uh, the fact is, uh, inside uh, China, Hong Kong has always been uh, taught to the children as something that was taken away during the opium wars in a very, very negative situation for the Western powers. Uh, More importantly today, uh, Xi Jinping is under uh, great internal pressure inside his own party to look tough. Uh, He was criticized for how he handled the trade war, which is why last May the trade war backed up and the Chinese changed their position. Uh, He was criticized for the early cover-up of the coronavirus in uh, uh, January 14th memo that was then uh, erased. Uh, 
And so uh, he he is in not in a position to do anything other than look like a strong man right now. And if you add that together with an election here, President Trump that's gone from a booming economy to a softening economy to the coronavirus and all that and the uh, and the current weakness in the polls, this is a situation where. Uh, U.S. politicians of both parties are really going to take aim at China and blame right. them for everything. And China is going to uh, do everything to suppress the riots or demonstrations in Hong Kong because they fear that finding its way onto the mainland. So it's almost watching a slow train wreck. Yeah. I've been so there, uh, as Myron has, I'm sure, 20 years, 100 times. I've lived in Beijing and, uh, and uh, much time in Hong Kong. And it's just... Uh, it's a terrible tragedy. I hope they keep as much of Hong Kong's freedom as possible. I don't think that will happen politically. It might happen practically. In the law that's been passed today that will be drawn up by the, uh, the, by the standing committee, it, it really just changes uh, uh, in a minor way the text of a law that will then be written up between now and September. So it isn't the paper that's the issue. Right, absolutely. It's the fact that China is now taking control yeah. visibly to the outside world. So what you both described, John, to you, again, describing this as basically a tragedy for those who are interested in, in Hong Kong's uh, freedoms. And Myron, for you to saying you don't want anything that's going to disrupt kind of the status quo here with the U.S. and China. Well, <laughs> I take away yeah. from that the, the likelihood that the U.S. is kind of just going to let this play out. Right. I mean, that it sounds to me like they're going to talk really tough. It goes back to what Arthur Brooks, the other. We're going to talk really tough about it, but we're not really going to do anything. Well, I'm not going to I'm not going to speak to what the administration will do. I, I know that there is conversations going on in the interagency process and obviously the president's involved and and the administration has a range of policy choices that they're considering, you know, from visas to export controls to tariffs. What I, we really want is, first off, President Xi Jinping and President Trump to have a regular dialogue. Two, what we want is there to be some kind of strategic framework in these discussions between the two governments. We need China and the United States to have a functional relationship. The world needs it. If we're going to address the economic hardships and, of course, the public health hardships coming from the pandemic, then the two countries, the most powerful nations in the world, the two largest economies in the world, need to figure out where they can cooperate. We're going to have some differences on trade issues, on technology issues, obviously related to Hong Kong and other issues like that. But we've got to figure out a way to manage this relationship. Yeah. After all, the United States is going to continue to want to invest in our own economy, strengthen our own economy, mm -hmm. but we need to work with our allies in Europe, with our trading partners around the world. But we also need to be able to engage China. And this is a complicating time in our relationship with China. And this decision by the Chinese government adds another layer of complexity at a time yeah. we didn't. I think if, to the public, the mess, it's going to be a question of, yeah, is it is it cooperation or capitulation? And uh, we'll leave it there for now. But I think that's going to be the question on everybody's minds. Myron Brilliant, John Rutledge, a couple of experts on this issue. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Good, good to speak with you. Coming up, we have another big jump in new jobless claims. It has some warning that this is disincentivizing people to go back to work. A new proposal says what we need are back-to-work cash bonuses instead. The man behind it, Senator Rob Portman, will join us coming up. Plus, as retailers have reopened their doors, more consumers are showing up than anticipated. And there are some clear winners so far. We've got the names. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two minutes. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. Now to the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for the headlines. Sue? Thanks, Kelly, and good afternoon. Just moments ago, the House passed a bill giving small businesses more time to spend their government loans. It goes next to the Senate. New cases and deaths in Wisconsin surging to new highs just two weeks after the state Supreme Court struck down the governor's statewide stay-at-home order. CVS Health meeting its goal with 1,000 COVID-19 testing sites in 30 states and Washington, D.C., up and running by the end of the week. CNBC.com has details on what people need to get a test. And with Major League Baseball idle, Dodger Stadium is drawing a different kind of crowd. Its massive parking lot will now serve as California's largest coronavirus testing site with the capacity to do 6,000 tests a day. You're up to date, Kel. Back to you. And, and uh, Wrigley Field is a food bank, as we learned the other day as well. Right. Signs of the times. Uh, Sue, thanks very much. Sue Herrera with the latest there. Coming up, back-to-work bonuses, paying for companies to come home, job losses, and the state of reopening. National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow joins us to talk about all of that and more. And as economies across the country begin to reopen, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan says he's seeing positive signs. You're seeing us come out of the... Uh, you know, out of the depths of where we were in April, and that's good news, and that's due to two things. One is just people are starting to spend more money as the stimulus hits generally, and then more, more importantly in terms of the numbers moving faster is the impact of the opening of various economies. Welcome back. Dow's up 178 points. NASDAQ outperforming again. Let's get a check on the markets and some of the big movers with Dom Chu. Dom? All right. So, Kelly, stocks are higher near the best levels of the day so far. The S&P and NASDAQ, by the way, each working on four-day winning streaks. Now, that 3,000 area continues to be an area that traders are watching in the charts to look to see whether or not it will act as a near-term floor for that index, something to keep an eye on. So far, though, it's the utilities, healthcare, and technology sectors that are outperforming. You can see here industrials, financial, and energy are the real laggards so far today. Now, some stocks to watch include UPS staging a midday reversal after announcing it will start charging large merchandise shippers more given the surge in e-commerce demand due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Home builder Toll Brothers also up at off-session highs after it reported better than expected quarterly financial results. And we'll end on Six Flags, which is taking a hit due in part to analysts at Goldman Sachs starting coverage of the stock with a sell rating, citing in part headwinds it will face from reduced attendance and social distancing measures. So those shares off by about 9% so far. Kel, back over to you. Yeah, you think we'd already know that. Uh, but <laughs> still, uh, the share is down big. It's been a good run, though, in the last couple of couple of months. Absolutely, absolutely. Maybe a reality check. I know, right? There so you go. Uh, Dom, thanks very <laughs> you much. Meanwhile, as House Democrats look to extend the Enhanced Unemployment Benefit Program through January, critics argue that the $600 a week extra payment incentivizes Americans not to return to work. One senator says he has a different plan, which he hopes can bridge the two sides. For more on the path forward for American workers, I'm now joined by Senator Rob Portman of Ohio. Senator, welcome. Hey, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. So your proposal would give people an extra $450 a week if they go back to work? The idea is to have a bonus. Right now, uh, as we just saw with your stock market report, the economy is starting to reopen, and that's good. But to have a robust economic recovery that we all want, we've got to encourage people to go back to work. So how right now the uh, $600 a week extra goes through, I believe, the end of July. Uh, That's correct. How would your proposal work? And and how would you know, explain if this were rolled out, what it would mean, practically speaking, to every American who transfers from being on jobless benefits to maybe accepting a job or or going back to work? Well, well, first, let me just be sure people understand that under the current system, according to a recent study by the University of Chicago and American Action Forum, 60 to 70 percent of the people on unemployment today are making more than they did in their prior job. Uh, for the bottom 20 percent of wage earners, they're making on average double what they made in the workforce. So what I'm hearing from small business folks all around the state of Ohio is, hey, we're getting ready to you know, start to hire some people and, and we, we'd like to reopen, but we're having a tough time uh, getting our employees to, to come back. And, 
and to find new employees. So the idea here is not to say that people shouldn't be getting help if they lost their job uh, and through no fault of their own. A lot of people did. But instead to say, hey, if you're on unemployment insurance and uh, you want to go back to work, you can get a bonus to do that. So our bonus at $450 comes out of the $600 per week. And the idea is that that $450 is enough to make it, uh, you know, fair for people who are uh, on minimum wage, as an example. The 450 is based on the average minimum wage to make sure that you're even, that you're not making more or less if you go back to work. So others have said it should be 200 bucks. Some have said it should be 600 bucks. But the point is to have a bonus to go back to work, which helps everybody, helps the worker, helps yeah. the small businesses, and helps the taxpayer because you're saving probably 40 billion dollars a year just at the federal and state level just between now and the end of July. Meanwhile, there's a discussion uh, about potentially the a different way. So uh, as I understand it, Democrats say they might consider uh, keeping the sunset of the extra benefits if in exchange uh, they can do a wage subsidy, an employee tax credit to keep people on payrolls. Uh, would you sign up for a plan like that um, if that is what's offered in exchange? If, it, if it's like, hey, we don't, you know, we're not going to do the extra 450 a week bonus for going back to work, but we will do some kind of wage subsidy. Well, we'll, we'll, I'm willing to take a look at anything that gets people back to work. You know, I think that we need to provide incentives for work. And again, what I'm hearing from small businesses here in Ohio is they're starting to get moving again, but they're having a tough time getting workers. And the employment situation is, is going to be key to getting this economic recovery going. The workplace needs to be safe. That's that's for sure. And, and our program would be optional. It's not something people uh, would be required to take. It, it would be something I think a lot of people would take advantage of. But we, we can't have what the Democrats are proposing, which is in the Nancy Pelosi Pact, uh, passed uh, HEROES Act, the $3 trillion plus bill. It says that the additional $600 per week at the federal level, which, again, means that 60 to 70 percent of people are making more than they did in their prior job, that that would continue into next year. Uh, I, I think that's not in the interest of our economic growth we all want to see and getting this recovery going again. It's not in the interest of workers because if you want to get people back to work, everyone should want that. That's where people generally get their health care. That's where people get their retirement. Uh, that's where people get the uh, the meaning in, in their life and the dignity and self-respect that comes from work. So we should all be working toward that end. One final question, Senator, which is about the uncertainty kind of in the back half of this year and into next year about the economy. You know, I could see the case for there being some kind of enhanced unemployment benefits if, for example, some restaurants that are open right now, maybe due in part to some government aid, end up shutting their doors, you know, and all of a sudden it's September or October. I mean, or even 2021. Is there a case to be made for saying we will provide some enhanced unemployment benefits if you end up losing your job basically because of the pandemic, but it happens because the shoe drops a little bit later than, you know, right during the shutdowns the first time around. Yeah, that's certainly something for, for Congress to, to, to take a look at and, and for the administration to watch carefully. But I think the more likely scenario is you know, the economy starts to take off and there's a lot of uh, pent up demand right right now. There's a lot of opportunity for growth, obviously, where we're, you know, we're, we're in a tough situation, worse probably than in our history, except the Great Depression in terms of unemployment numbers. So. I think I think the more likely scenario is there, there, there will be opportunities for people to go back to work. And I think with the increased testing and with more antiviral medication uh, and with more PPE available, the protective gear, I think it's going to be safer and better as, as we move along. We could have, um, you know, another outbreak, but I think this time we'll be much better prepared for the virus should should there be in the fall or into the winter, as some have suggested, the possibility of of this virus, you know, raising its ugly head again, we'll, yeah. we'll have the ability to respond quickly. So I think that's the more likely scenario. And let's be sure that we have the workforce to be able to make that happen. All right. Senator Rob Portman, thanks for your time this afternoon. Thank you, Kelly. Appreciate Detailing you his plan for back to work bonuses. Coming up, stores opened their doors and shoppers showed up in bigger numbers than was anticipated. One analyst tells us why the retail recovery could be a V-shape after all. Plus, 40 million people have lost their jobs since the pandemic began. Big names like Boeing and American Airlines announcing even more layoffs this week. Does the administration have further plans to stem these losses? We will ask NEC Director Larry Kudlow right after this.
Welcome back. One in four American workers have filed for unemployment benefits since the coronavirus pandemic forced the U.S. economy to shut down about 10 weeks ago. An additional two million people filed just last week. For more on this and how the federal government can restart the economy, I'm joined by Larry Kudlow, director of the National Economic Council. Larry, it's good to see you again. Welcome. Hey, Kelly. How are you? I'm better than most, I, I guess I would say. And um, maybe that's the, the right place to start. You know, the, the 40 million number is terrible. We've been talking all hour about, you know, different proposals like the one you just heard from Senator uh, Portman about you know, maybe cash bonuses for people to get back to work. And w- what are your thoughts at this point about kind of the line between helping and, and hurting the recovery? Well, I think uh, you, if you're referring to the cash bonuses and Senator Portman's idea, uh, it's something we're looking at very closely. And, um, you know, we may go with something like that. I don't want to button it down right now. I don't want to get ahead of the policy curve. But we are looking at it because the plus up to 600 above the state levels, uh, everyone of all sides of the spectrum have acknowledged that that is a disincentive to go back to work. So we want to promote work. We don't want to obstruct work. And, you know, we're seeing the economy gradually in phases reopen in May and June. These are the transition months. We're actually seeing some glimmers of hope amidst all the hardship and uh, heartbreak. We're seeing some glimmers of hope on the economy. The states are opening up. The businesses are opening up. We're going to get a lot more of it in June. And we just want to make sure that we do what we can to have healthy businesses and to have a healthy workforce and get people back to work. You know, Kelly, one one side point here on this, as you know, with these unemployment claims and with the jobs numbers monthly, a lot of it, maybe as much as 75 percent of it, uh, looked like uh, temporary layoffs. Now, you can't be sure, but that's the way it was reported yeah. in the BLS surveys. If that is true, or if that is nearly true, then we may see folks coming back to work faster than we might have thought, let's say, a month or six weeks ago. The only thing I wonder, I asked this to the senator as well, is... What happens, Larry, there's people who are able to use the relief money now, maybe stay in business. But if it comes October, if it comes early next year and it's a restaurant that's no longer viable, has to lay people off. I mean, do we then just kind of use the regular jobless benefit system for that? Or do you think there still needs to be, you know, a little bit of extra uh, whatever you'd call it? Because after all, these closings are still related to the pandemic. Well, that's all true. And I suppose I would best answer that by saying we'll take a look at it. But it's a it's a. Look, we've never had anything like this, obviously. hundred years, very hard to do any economic modeling around this. We're doing what we can as our other economists outside the government. Um, I kind of want to see what happens in the next four weeks, because as we come into July, I mean, we may be very happily surprised at the economic improvement as the virus flattens and actually is adjusting down. We're seeing some early returns, and I acknowledge they're just early returns, but some of the states that are opening are showing, A, lots of businesses opening, B, folks are returning to work, and C, just as importantly, the virus continues to flatten and adjust downward in those data. Because you can't do this, it's not one or the other. We want to open up and we want the economy to recover but it's got to be done safely. Yeah. It's got to be done safely. I can't emphasize that enough. But with all that, Kelly, uh, I remain optimistic. Our own view is you're going to have a very, very, very strong bounce back in the second half of the year. You know, one thing that is kind of all of a sudden coming into view, and I wonder if it's, if it's not a co- coincidence, you know, we're talking about glimmers of a recovery. We have the big election coming up in November. Obviously, the economy is a really important component of that. And here you have China making an aggressive move onto Hong Kong, maybe gambling that the U.S. isn't going to do anything about it that would harm our own economy as a result. So on the one, you know, you've got people out there who want the U.S. to be tough on China, but who also want a strong economy. Is there any way to get both of those things? Well, let me say that China, in my judgment, is making a very big mistake in their national security move to take over Hong Kong. Secretary of State Pompeo has been outspoken on this. President Trump is also. Um, Essentially, they have robbed Hong Kong of their freedom. They have broken the 50- or 60-year treaty that was signed in the mid-late 1990s. Uh, We can't let this go unnoticed. 
and uh, they will be held accountable for that if uh, need be. Hong Kong now may have to be treated the same way that China is treated, mm -hmm. and that has implications for tariffs, and that has implications for uh, financial transparency and stock market listings and related matters. I think China has made a huge mistake, just as we have long said that China concealing information uh, without any transparency, without any outside inspection with respect to the virus, which clearly originated in China. That was another big mistake. So we're very unhappy with those issues. It's a complex relationship. The uh, China phase one trade deal does continue to go on for the moment. And um, we may be making progress there. But I think their moves on Hong Kong are a very, very big mistake. Because there are people who have said they're not really honoring the terms of the phase one trade deal. Again, mi you know, mitigating factors, there's a pandemic and so forth. Um, but but th that being said, any of the moves we make in response, I hear Senator Toomey calling for sanctions that could involve the banking system. Uh, I've seen reports of maybe denying visas to Chinese students, which the universities who are already reeling right now won't be that thrilled about. Again, these are kind of short-term, long-term trade-offs. But... Um, you know, how much is the U.S. willing to risk? Because the last time we kind of went through the tariff and trade wars, we remember how volatile the market was and how it slowed the economy coming out of the Jobs Act. You know, what happens if if just as we're coming out of the pandemic, you know, the U.S.-China thing uh, pulls the brake on this all over again? Well, I must say that um, China's behavior regarding the, the pandemic, as I said, their concealment, their lack of transparency, their lack of information, a possible conspiracy with the World Health Organization, that cannot be ignored, and they will be held accountable for that. It's not about the stock market. It's about this pandemic impact around the world. Second point, with respect to Hong Kong, you know, we've seen these battles before, then China pulled back. Hong Kong is clearly losing its freedom. China is now breaking longstanding rules and laws and treaties. That means uh, Hong Kong will be treated differently, and again, China itself will be held accountable. I don't want to be specific. The president will be speaking at some length about these and related matters. But, of course, Secretary Pompeo has made it very clear, and I echo his views. One final question on this, Larry, is I think you mentioned the other day you're looking at paying U.S. companies to relocate their supply chains to the U.S. What kind of financial incentive are we talking about? Well, I think that's an important point because I think a lot of these firms realize They've been too dependent on China or any single country. Uh, or perhaps uh, these complex supply chains just don't work the way they thought they worked 10 or 20 years ago when it was all the rage. Now, insofar as helping companies move, uh, we are looking at 100 percent expensing uh, for all equipment, uh, structures and related matters. Um, that law, which was put in place in 2017, phases out in 2022. We do not want to phase out. We want to strengthen 100% expensing. Also, for various moving expenses related to a shift back to the U.S., uh, we have a number of areas. Uh, the old OPEC DFS or DFC, rather, may be quite helpful. Even the XM Bank may be quite helpful in bringing them back home. We encourage people to take a hard look and come back to America. I think folks have learned. You operate in China like this, it is not reliable. It is simply not reliable. So they're taking a whole new look at it, and we will do whatever we can to aid the move back to America. Interesting. That kind of goes back to the state of the economy in the months ahead and, and possibly years. What are the current plans? I forget what phase we're in now, four or five or four and a half. I mean, yes. there's state and local government aid that clearly needs to be doled out. There's, you know, I, I'm not even sure the Fed's Main Street program has lent out any any funds yet. So, you know, again, that's potentially a six trillion dollar program to the economy, but not not really doing much right now. So what's in your mind? What more is needed here? And, and what who is it going to be directed at? Well, I think, look, this just to back up, I mean, I think the. Uh, PPP worked very, very well. There are always little glitches here and there, um, and there may be some slight technical changes in legislation, but I think it worked very, very well. Um, as far as the Fed is concerned, uh, I think they've done a terrific job. Uh, you're right. They have more ammunition. They got more bullets. So does the Treasury, for that matter. And that's very important to stand by. Some of this is very uncertain. Everyone has to acknowledge that. So it's out there. Now, as far as um, 4.5 or Phase 5 or whatever it's called, um, you know, we're looking at a lot of options. Uh, again, um, perhaps rewarding people to go back to work. 
uh, president is very keen on a um, payroll tax holiday for the workforce, which would uh, give them a net increase in their take-home pay of about 7.6 percent. That's a big deal. Uh, we may provide something of a bonus uh, to forego unemployment and, uh, and uh, go back into the labor force. Uh, we're looking at um, deductions for restaurants, uh, deductions uh, for tourism, uh, which has taken a tremendous hit. Tourism and hospitality may be the single worst area, maybe air travel as well. Um, a whole panoply of issues. We're looking at the possibility of a capital gains tax, where if you invest in any asset, not just the stock market, but any asset at all, you will uh, be excluded from capital gains if you do it before the end of the year. So there are a number of options here. Uh, we're working on it uh, virtually every day and meeting with the president. Well, you think we're going to be back to the 100 percent of economy, you know, in terms of levels, Larry? Because it's, you know, we might be coming back quicker than expected, but we can't stay down, you know, minus 10. That would be a, a travesty. Well, look, at I think that um, from the CBO, Congressional Budget Office and elsewhere, uh, Kevin Hass and I both agree we're going to have tremendous growth in the second half, uh, probably around 20 percent. Um, maybe the strongest quarter in history, taking GDP stats. And we're also going to roll into 2021. Uh, uh, CBO is at 4.1 percent for the year. Those are really strong numbers. And we started out with a solid economy. You and I have talked about this. Lower taxes and regulations and better trade deals. And by the way, don't forget USMCA. That's going to be a stimulant once we get back to something closer to normalcy. I'm very optimistic that we'll get through this. I'm very optimistic that we've made great strides on public health safety, and I think this is all going to pay off. The president has put together a tremendous package. He rebuilt the economy once. Those pillars are still there, and he'll stay on the supply side and market-oriented economies and assistance plans for individuals to help some of the hardships. So I think we can roll into 2021 and have a spectacular year also. All right. And with a lot of uh, ideas about what potential relief we might see coming down the pike. Larry, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Larry Kudlow, director of the National Economic Council. Coming up, we've been wondering whether shoppers would venture back into stores once they reopened. We're getting some early data now that took my next guest by surprise. The numbers and what it could mean for retail moving forward are right after this. Welcome back. The coronavirus pandemic has definitely taken its toll on retailers around the world. But there's some reason for optimism. After a big drop in March and April, the retail ETF, the XRT, is up double digits over the last month. And my next guest says mall volume at stores is exceeding his expectations so far. He even says we could see a V-shaped rebound in retail after all. Here to talk about the path forward for the industry is Jan Niffen. He is the CEO of J. Rogers Niffen Worldwide and a CNBC contributor. Jan, welcome. We don't have a, a ton of time, so I want to get as much of this in as possible. What is What in particular jumped out to you and made you say, hey, wow, this is stronger than I thought? Well, I was really surprised to see the malls opening up at about 55 percent of last year's traffic. And I was more surprised to see the off-mall guys opening up about 85 percent of last year's traffic. So, yes, the off-mall is still winning, just like they were coming into the crisis. And on-mall is still losing compared to off-mall but they're both stronger right now than they thought they would be coming out of this. Maybe that's the 1200 bucks everybody got to put in their pocket. Maybe it's the 500 bucks a kid. Maybe it's the fact that two-thirds of the people being unemployed right now are making a little more than they were working. But whatever it is, they're outspending it, and they're going back to the stores. And the stores that are open now are doing better than they anticipated, better than I anticipated. And everybody you've had on today on your show has been fairly optimistic I'm not raining on that parade. Yeah. It really looks like a V-shaped recovery if I, you're looking at the retail. I know. Now I'm, now I'm worried everyone's talking about the V. <laughs> you know, maybe we're baking too much into that. You mentioned that TJ Maxx is one of the strongest performers there off mall, obviously. Um, but on mall, you said Macy's and Dillard surprised you, uh, didn't they? Well, they both opened at about 55 percent of last year on the stores they opened. I think we all thought if they were north of 30 percent of last year, we would be happy. Now, off mall, we thought that people would open at about 70 percent of last year, and they opened at 85. I mean, the last place I kind of thought people were going back to is the mall. 
And clearly they are in numbers higher than what we anticipated. And there's no reason to think it's not just going to get gradually better from here. Well, so if that's true, it's going to get stronger heading through the back end. That's all we need to see for a V-shaped recovery. You know, it's funny. That was my exact next question is, is there some pent up uh, demand here? Is there some uh, spending from enhanced unemployment benefits and the other factors you mentioned that's actually creating a one-time boost that could taper off a little bit as we head into the holiday season. I'm trying to remember the executive who just told us he was worried about the holiday season uh, for that very reason. I'm worried about the holiday season only in that I don't think it'll be as strong as last year. But think about it. What if it's 90 or 95 percent of last year? Given what we just went through, we would all be happy. Most people only planning the holiday season 65 or 70 percent of last year. We're already looking like we could get there pretty quickly. So who thought people were going to go buy apparel the first thing they got out of their houses? But we're seeing strength in apparel. We haven't seen strength in apparel clearly all through the pandemic. I mean, Target told us how bad apparel was when people were stocking up on their houses. Now they're back buying apparel and they're out of the mall doing it. I didn't think that was going to happen in the volumes that are happening. So I think we should be fairly optimistic. Either people are spending the money that the government provided or things are just getting better. Hmm. I'm kind of in the things are just getting better camp. I think people are coming back faster than we thought they would. Any final names that you would uh, recommend or tell people, hey, I'm still cautious on quickly? Well, Burlington's been strong. Ross has been strong. TJ's been strong. But the surprising things are things like Dillard's and and Macy's being a little stronger than we thought. And then when you look at all the traditionals, I mean, the guys that got to stay open, whether you're an off-price guy or whether you're a discount guy that's down at the Walmart and Target level or whether you're a dollar store, they're all doing really, really well. You saw tractor supply, big numbers. They got to stay open. So most of those retailers that were deemed essential are doing really well. Mm -hmm. And the non-essential ones that are reopening are reopening faster and stronger than we thought. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to be hurting the essential guys that were already open either. Interesting. Jan, thanks so much. Uh, loved your, your note and your commentary. So thanks for joining me, Jan Niffen of J. Rogers Niffen Worldwide. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.